Today, we finally come to the end of Paul's treatment of the church's divisions over leadership. Some of you are like, finally, it took us long enough to get through these first four chapters. And now that he has critiqued their inappropriate view of church leaders, Paul lifts up how Christian leaders should be viewed. I didn't learn my lesson in last week's message by tackling all of chapter 3, and I'm going to repeat myself by tackling all of chapter 4 here together this morning. Read along with me as we read 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 21. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, and none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I am not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Let's pray. Lord, we stand before another challenging text this morning. We know we are entirely dependent upon you to correctly understand it. Lord, I am entirely dependent upon you to correctly interpret it and explain it, and we as listeners are entirely dependent upon you to correctly understand it and apply it. And Lord, we ask that as we walk through this text, that your spirit would be present, that you would guide and direct as you see fit, that you would challenge and encourage, that you would mold us into the image of Christ. Lord, help your word to be faithfully proclaimed, faithfully heard, and faithfully obeyed in our time together this morning. For your glory and our good. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So now that Paul has addressed these problematic views of Christian leadership, Paul now lifts up what Christian leaders 
are supposed to look like, what they're called to, and how they ought to be viewed. He says this in verse 1, if you didn't see it. This is how one should regard us. This is how one should regard us. And he goes on to explain, with three metaphors, how we are to view Christian leaders. He says, first, we are to view Christian leaders as faithful stewards, verses 1 through 5, faithful stewards. Second, we are to view Christian leaders as humble examples, humble examples. And finally, we are to view Christian leaders as loving fathers, faithful stewards, humble examples, and loving fathers. First, let's look at this faithful stewards idea. Look at verse 1. We're going to see that the ultimate judge of faithful stewardship is God and not man. Paul picks up right where he left off at the end of chapter 3 talking about servants. He says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. He holds up a better standard to this Corinthian church. He says, this is the way you're evaluating your leaders. This is a new perspective that you should embrace. They are servants of Christ. And if you were here last week, you know we talked about that in little detail. But there's at least two implications that are worth noting about this servants of Christ idea. The first is church leaders are ministers, not masters. Church leaders are ministers, not masters. They're not to be viewed as kings with unilateral authority directing everything that goes on. Remember, they are the owner of the field, or they are the the worker in the field, not the owner of the field. They're the builder of the building, not the owner of the building, right? But second, in addition to being ministers and not masters, they report to Christ, not to the congregation. Church leaders, Christian leaders, report to Christ, not to the congregation. They are servants of Christ, which runs a little bit affront to us, right? I am woefully aware of the fact that if none of you were to show up next week, if none of you were to give to the church next week, I would be out of both a job and a salary. And yet, we are called to be servants of Christ. So in this respect, we look at leaders as faithful stewards. We realize they are neither kings, though they exercise a degree of authority, nor are they elected officials, though they are accountable. We have a tendency to err on one of these sides and either view church leaders as kings who have all the authority or as elected officials who merely are called to represent us for as long as we are interested in them, who can be voted in and out of office at our discretion. But he says, instead, Christian leaders are called to be servants of Christ. He explains that more when he goes on, and he says they are called to be stewards of the mysteries of God. A steward is one that is entrusted to manage and to lead, but they are not fundamentally the owner. Just like Joseph in Potiphar's house, where he was given all the authority and responsibility necessary to oversee that, but Potiphar remained the owner of the house. And they are stewards of what? Stewards of the mysteries of of God. There is a stewardship, a management, an oversight of the mysteries of God. What is he talking about here? What is this mysteries of God? This is the secret and hidden wisdom that we talked about a few weeks ago in chapter 2, verse 7. This is the power of God that we saw in chapter 2, verse 5. This is the world's definition, foolish wisdom of God that we saw in chapter 1, verse 21. This is the testimony about Christ that Paul praised 
the believers for in chapter 1, verse 6. In short, the mysteries of God here is the testimony of the gospel. It is the good news of what Christ has done for us. It is the simple and straightforward message that God created us for his glory. He created us to live as image bearers of him. But every single one of us, along with Adam and Eve, rebelled against God's authority. We rebelled against God's word. We walked our own way and did our own thing, and we are rebels to this day. But praise God that he sent Christ, who lived a perfect life, who died a death on our behalf, who was raised again, affirming that he had put to death sin and death and has returned to the right hand of his Father in heaven. That is the stewardship of the mysteries of God. That is the stewardship that we are called to oversee and called to care for. This is a new priority for the church. Rather than looking to the eloquence of Apollo, so rather than looking to the theological acumen of Paul, or rather than looking to the shepherding ability of Cephas, Paul looks at this church and he says, your ministers, your church leaders are called to be stewards of the mysteries of God. And so as such, there's a new standard here. Look at verse 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found what? Faithful. The standard for success in ministry is faithfulness to God and faithfulness to the gospel. That is the definition of success. Faithfulness to God as his servants, faithfulness to the gospel as his stewards. We've talked about this in the past, but it's easy to say it's really difficult to do, both for those of us that are in leadership and for all the rest of us. Because our natural tendency is to begin to evaluate. And Paul goes right there in verse 3. It's interesting, he addresses three different evaluations that could be applied to God's stewards. First, the judgment of men. Look at verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Paul looks at them and says, you guys are really keen on judgment and criticism, but it's a very small thing that I be judged by you. Or by the world's courts, by any human court. He said, it's not really critical what you as the Corinthian church think of my ministry. It's not really critical what the world thinks of my ministry. The judgment of men means very little. Because he looks at this church and he says, some of you are suffering from a disease a disease known as chronic criticism, where you're making a living out of criticizing everyone and everything that you disagree with. But Paul looks at this church and he says, people are not the final evaluation of our ministry. Your approval and the approval of the world are not the final evaluation of our ministry. To which we would have a tendency to think, okay, so Paul, you're putting yourself on a pedestal. You must be better than the rest of us. Well, Paul addresses himself here in verse 3. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. So how about the judgment of myself? How about my own personal perception? Paul looks at his own evaluation, and he says that's not the standard either my own personal evaluation. He doesn't mean there isn't some value in evaluating our ministry. Last week in chapter 3, we talked about considering what you're building with. 
Are you building with a heart and an intent to serve God or a heart to be self-serving, to see the approval of people? Evaluate your own heart. But Paul looks at them and says, there is another type of disease that's capable of taking place, and that is what I might call spiritual hypochondria. Hopefully you all know what hypochondria is. It's those people that suffer from the disease of thinking they have a disease, right? They think they're always sick, and so they run around looking for things that prove their sickness, getting scans and taking their temperature and taking medicine and going to different doctors in the hopes of finding some diagnosis. And we could be very capable of that, can't we? Constantly evaluating our own situation, constantly evaluating our own work, constantly wondering if it meets the mustard, if you will. And Paul says, our perceptions and our feelings are not the final evaluation of our ministry either. The evaluation of the world and people is not the final evaluation. Our own personal perceptions, thoughts, and feelings are not the final evaluation. Instead, he looks to the judgment of God. Look at verse 4. I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time for the Lord, before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. He describes this progression. Who is going to evaluate? It is God's judgment that evaluates our ministry. He says, first, God comes, right? God comes. He will come before the Lord comes. In the last days when Jesus returns to earth and evaluates the success and failure of any ministry, that's God's role. But he says, in addition to coming, God will reveal who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. The reality is, all of us don't know what we don't know. None of us, I hope, would claim to be omnipotent and know everything and every deal and what's going on. He says, when God comes to evaluate and judge ministry, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. We don't know what we don't know. We don't know the circumstances of somebody else's life. We don't know the circumstances of somebody else's situation. We just don't know. But God does, and he will evaluate based upon that. But in addition to revealing the details, God also discloses what's in the heart, in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Now, that's a terrifying thing to consider, is it not? If all of the intentions and the purposes of every one of our hearts were on display for all of us, we would be terrified to come into this room, would we not? But God's role is to ultimately and finally evaluate the heart and the reason we all do what we do in his service. There are times when on the outside a situation looks to be very good, as if somebody must be operating with the best of intentions, but God knows what's going on in the heart. There are times when on the outside, things can look very bad and we're assuming somebody must be operating with ill intentions, but God knows the heart. And ultimately, God will evaluate, God will disclose the purposes of the heart because he's the only one that knows. Man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. And then as a result, he is the only one that can commend. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Each one, after this evaluation, this disclosure, will be commended by God for the reasons that he or she did what he did in God's service. And therefore, the principle is, do not pronounce judgment before the time. 
do not pronounce judgment before the time. And again, like we've said before, we are not saying that we're all autonomous individuals, answerable and responsible to no one. In fact, next week in chapter 5, Paul is going to call out the church for not judging a blatant sin in their church. But what we do realize is that all human judgments are preliminary, not perfect. Any evaluation, any consideration, any judgment that we do is preliminary, it's not perfect. Because God is the ultimate judge of his faithful stewardship, not man. God will ultimately judge his faithful stewardship, not man. So are we going to adapt our view to God's standards? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. As leaders, we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to prioritize gospel faithfulness over giftedness? All of those types of people I mentioned at the beginning are very gifted people. But is gospel faithfulness more important than giftedness? Are we willing to, or to prioritize consistency over popularity in a world that is infatuated with what's popular and what's exciting and what's novel? A lot of ministry is just faithful, slow obedience. It means caring more about the internals than the externals. It means caring more about the word than what's trending. As leaders, in whatever capacity you are a Christian leader, in your job, in your home, in the church, in your family, are you willing to prioritize those things? For all the rest of us, as we sit here and consider this, think about it. Am I a chronic critic? Do I find myself naturally drawn toward criticizing others? toward evaluating and judging others as if we knew what was going on in their heart? Am I a spiritual hypochondriac, constantly concerned with what's going on inside, so concerned with myself that I don't see the people I need to minister around me? And maybe most specifically, am I faithfully sharing the gospel? Am I faithfully stewarding what God has given me? And am I faithfully serving right where God has placed me? Or am I so busy looking at others that I forget to be obedient where God has put me? And though we avoid absolute certainty in these evaluations, we're still called to aspire to as church leaders and view church leaders as faithful stewards. But Paul points to a second picture of how we should view church leaders, Christian leaders, and that is as humble examples. Look at verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. It says, Christian leaders are humble examples. Faithful ministry is exemplified by true humility and by patient suffering. His first example is Apollos and Paul himself, an example of humility. He says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos. Why? For your benefit for your benefit. And then he says there's two benefits you're supposed to get from this. First, that you may learn not to go beyond what is written, to prevent ignorant assumptions. I am putting myself and Paul or Apollos up as examples of humility to prevent these ignorant assumptions that are currently running rampant in the church. 
The statement here is a bit unclear in the original language, but it's likely refuting the false teaching and the false apostles that are present in this church. But he also says the benefit is to prevent arrogant divisions. That you may learn not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. This is precisely what we've been talking through in the last three chapters of 1 Corinthians. Paul is seeking to undermine these arrogant divisions that are taking place in the church. And to do that, he asks three questions. He gets to the heart of what's really going on in this church. And I want us to slowly walk through these questions because these convicted me so much this week. Paul gets to the heart of the matter by asking three fairly simple questions. First, verse 7, he says, For who sees anything different in you? Who sees anything different in you? I, I actually prefer the NASB's translation here. I think it's clearer. Who regards you as superior? Apollos and Paul are set up as this example, and he says, Are you better or are you special than Paul or Apollos? Are you better or special than other believers? I would hope almost all of us would very naturally react with, no, there's nothing particularly special about me. Remember chapter 2, right? Not many of you were wise, not many of you were strong, not many of you had influence and power in the culture. So are you better or special? Well, no, not really. Next question, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? He looks at this church that was so infatuated with their abilities and so infatuated with their manifestations of the Spirit and so infatuated with their spiritual gifts and so infatuated with their leaders, and he says, all of it is a gift from God. What do you have that you were not first given from God? Your leaders, they were gifts from God. Your abilities, they were gifts from God. Your intellect, that's a gift from God. Your discernment, that's a gift from God. Your faith, that's a gift from God. All of it is a gift from God. What do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. So why do you boast as if you didn't? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul, through these piercing questions, is backing the Corinthians into a corner where they're faced to come face to face with their own pride and arrogance. If you were given it, why do you boast as if you did not give it, get it as a gift? And hopefully all of us at this point go, I don't know. I don't know why I am boasting about it if it was a gift from God. I questioned whether or not to use this illustration, but I think it's potent enough that it's worth risking it. On the Bill Cosby show, which I realize referencing Bill Cosby is always a little dangerous anymore, um, but this is one of the shows that I kind of grew up with, okay, so bear with me. Uh, Bill Cosby is a doctor, right, Dr. Huxtable, and he has a daughter named Vanessa. And in one of these episodes, his daughter Vanessa is getting made fun of because her family's wealthy. Her dad's a doctor, so they're pretty well-to-do, right? And they're having this discussion, and they're trying to help their daughter through this challenge. And Vanessa laments at one point, this would never have happened if we weren't so rich. That's a terrible thing, right? It's like, that would be miserable. Okay? And Cosby leans in, and you think he's going to say something extremely helpful to her. And he says, let's get something straight. 
you or your mother and I are rich. You have nothing. <laughs> and you can tell your friends that. <laughs> His point there is that everything she had as a daughter of a doctor was a gift from the one who had earned the money. It's the same as Paul's point here. Everything you have, you have been given. It was earned by someone else and it was given to you freely. How can you possibly be proud? That's his point. So he lifts up Paul and, apostles, uh, Paul and Apollos as an example of humility. Then he moves on and lifts up the apostles as examples of suffering. Look at 8 through 13. And fair warning in this text, Paul uses both irony and sarcasm. So it's a little tricky to read. It's a little tricky to read, but I'm going to try my best to put the right inflection in it. Verse 8 and 9, he says, You are kings and we are spectacles. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. It says, you think you are kings, but we as apostles are spectacles. And I think he's using the term apostle here a bit generically. I don't think he's just referring to the 12 because he seems to be including Apollos in this. He said, we are last of all. You are rich. You have riches. You are without want. You are kings, if you will, in this world, or you see yourselves that way. But we as apostles are the last of all. We are sentenced to death. We are made a spectacle out of. And this would have been a familiar imagery to the Corinthian believers as they would have been familiar with the Roman culture. It's the imagery of a Roman procession to the Colosseum. When the Romans went out and defeated enemies, what would happen is when they were victorious, they would come back into the city. And there would be this giant parade and this giant celebration, and the generals that had led the charge would be out in front, and then the faithful soldiers who had defeated the end would be next, and then the captured servants, and then those that were going to be put to death would be at the tail end of the parade. And everyone would be jeering and making fun of them. And they would be read right into the Colosseum, where they would be made a spectacle out of as they were put to death. And Paul draws on this imagery and he says, we as apostles, we as Christian leaders are last of all. We are sentenced to death. We are made a spectacle out of. And he presses the point deeper in verses 10, or verse 10. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake. That's the way the world views us. But you are wise in Christ, or so you think you are. We are weak, but you are strong. You see yourselves as so strong we are dishonored, but you are honored. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. He's stressing just how ridiculous their way of thinking is, just how proud they are in worldly standards and how ridiculous that is in God's economy. He's saying, we are apostles and the way the world views us is as a spectacle to be killed. And you're longing for respect and validity in the eyes of the world. He's saying, this is ridiculous. And how do these apostles, how does Paul and his others respond? I love this, verse 11 through 13. They suffer, but they endure patiently. Look at verse 11. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. Remember, Paul was a tent maker. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. 
These are the circumstances of what it means to be an apostle. These are the circumstances of what it means to be a Christian leader. We hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed. We are buffeted. We are homeless. We labor with our own hands. And yet look at the response that he holds up as an example for these Corinthian believers. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. That is what it means to be an apostle in God's economy. That is what it means to be a Christian leader in the way God views things in the world. Let me ask you, which of these two things the wise or the foolish, the strong or the weak, the honored or the dishonored, looks more like our Savior and Lord. Which looks more like Christ? In John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, Jesus said this to his disciples. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The image of Christ on a cross, the image of apostles as those that are being degraded and put to death in the world would have been revolting to this Corinthian church. They valued power, they valued prestige, they valued honor and Paul says, your leaders are to be humble examples instead. Like Christ, the apostles are examples of patient suffering because faithful ministry is exemplified by true humility and patient suffering. That's what faithful ministry is really about. It's kind of like one of those old Rocky movies. And again, I know I'm dating myself by mentioning these old Rocky movies. I don't know how many of them, five or six there are out there. But there's one common theme, no matter who Rocky is fighting, he's always the underdog, right? Which is strange, because he's been the champion forever, many years by the time it's all said and done, and he's always the underdog. And it's mostly because he's half the size of whoever he's fighting, right? And, and Rocky's approach, the way he wins his bouts, much to the chagrin of any real boxers out there, is the fact that he doesn't win by punching, really, the enemy. He wins by absorbing so many hits that he tires out his opponent. Every movie, there's like a 15-minute montage where Rocky's just getting beat up, and you're like, when is he going to fall down? Right? But he wins by how many hits he can take, not by how many hits he gives. This is just like what he's saying here. Faithful ministry is exemplified by true humility and patient suffering. Success in ministry is not evaluated by how many punches you give. It's evaluated by how many punches you can take for the glory of God, and for the good of those you love. So we need to adapt our view to God's standards in this. For those that lead, it means prioritizing humility and patient endurance. That is what we're called to. It means caring more about the character than the charisma. It means caring more about where your heart is at and who you are in your character than the way you can move and motivate people. It means caring more about endurance, long-sufferingness, than immediacy in ministry. There's this desire to rush things and move things quickly, but it means caring more about endurance than immediacy. 
for all the rest of us. I mean, consider, how do you respond when you are reviled, persecuted, and slandered? What is your response? Do you bless? Do you endure? Do you entreat? Or do you respond in kind? Do you fight back? Do you punch back? Do you respond with reviling, persecution, and slander? How do you respond when people treat you the way they treated Christ? We as church leaders are aspired to, and we as members are to view church leaders as humble examples. As humble examples. But Paul has one more image that he wants to convey to this Corinthian church. He warns them that he is coming, and he encourages them to view Christian leaders, lastly, as loving fathers, verses 14 through 21. We'll see that loving correction requires fatherly care, a fatherly example, and fatherly discipline. Paul expresses all of these things to this church. He starts with his fatherly care. Look at verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have, or you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He expresses his fatherly care for this church that he helped to found. He says, I'm not writing to, to admonish, or to, I am writing to admonish you, not to shame you. I'm not trying to make you feel ashamed, but to encourage you to obedience. His harsh words, his words that may have been interpreted as criticism or just painful to experience, were meant to correct. They were not meant punitively. They weren't meant to punish. They were meant to disciple. Paul says, I'm not writing to shame you, but I'm writing to encourage you, to admonish you as my own beloved children. He compares this guides versus fathers and says, I'm the one that was there when you were led to Christ. I didn't save you, but I articulated the gospel to you, and as such, I feel a fatherly affection for you. How many of you remember the person that led you to Christ? How do you think about that person? You know that it was God that transformed your heart, but you have a certain affection and affinity for that person that articulated the gospel that God used. And Paul exhibits a fatherly care for them here by correcting them, by risking offense and saying to them what needed to be said. But he also holds up his fatherly example to them. Look at verse 16 and 17. He says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Paul looks at them and says, look at my fatherly example. Look at me as an example of how to do what I'm telling you to do. In fact, that's why I sent you Timothy. Now, this term, you may have a little note by sent here. It's either past tense or future tense. We're not sure. But regardless, the reason Timothy was in Corinth, whenever he was in Corinth, was to remind them of how Paul lived, to point to the example of Paul and say, that's what your example is, insofar as Paul follows Christ. Paul serves as a fatherly example to them, and he says, look at me. I once heard the story told of a young boy who asked his father, when I get into the world... How am I supposed to know what to do? There's so many temptations and there's so many hard things and there's so many decisions. How do I know what I am supposed to do? The father looked back at him and replied, if you've seen me do it, it's okay. If you've seen me not do it, 
it's not okay. Now, how many of us as fathers could say that? How many of us could look at our children and say, if you've seen me do it, it's okay to do. And if you've seen me not do it, it is not okay to do. I confess that more often than not, I'm guilty of do as I say, not as I do. But that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, watch my life. I urge you then, be imitators of me, insofar as I imitate Christ's example. But lastly, and possibly most difficultly here, Paul holds up his fatherly discipline in verses 18 through 21. He says, some of you are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. Some of you are arrogant. Truer words have never been spoken to a church. This was precisely the Corinthians' problem. But he says, some of you are arrogant because you think I'm not going to come and address the issue. But when I come to see you, if the Lord wills, I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power, what the real impact is. For the kingdom of God does not consist of talk, but in power, in life transformation, in gospel impact, not in talk. And then he warns them, and this is the part we struggle with. How do you, or what do you wish? Verse 21. Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? As your loving father, how would you like me to come to you? With a rod in discipline or with a love in a spirit of gentleness? These are your options. Correcting or gentleness? And it's important for us to note at this point when we read this from Paul, Paul is not being cruel, Paul is not being mean. Because Christian love involves gentleness at times and severity at times. It involves both of those things if we genuinely love those that follow us. Paul warns of his fatherly discipline if they don't respond. He says, I can come to address the issue, but I would prefer to come with a spirit of gentleness and love. Loving correction requires fatherly care, a fatherly example, and at times, fatherly discipline. That's what we're going to talk about next week. And I consider this as I think about my own role as a father at home. Most of you know I have four small children, right? Six, four, three, and one. And at times, they struggle, believe it or not. And every time that happens, I am forced to ask the question as the father in the home, have I put in the time to express my fatherly care for them? Do they know that I care for them? Do they know that I love them? Do they know that I've taken the time to know their heart and to let them know mine? Do they know that I care? But I also have to ask the question, have I walked the walk? Have I lived out what I'm asking my children to do? Have I shown them by example something different that I'm saying with my words? And lastly, have I lovingly corrected them too? All three are necessary. We have to put in the time, we have to care, we have to lead by example and show those that follow us what they're supposed to do. And at times, we have to lovingly correct them. In our homes, in our churches, in our work. A love that puts the blinders on and pretends that there aren't issues is not a love that cares for those that follow. And even then, sometimes they don't respond. And for many of you, that's extremely personal. You've evaluated your own heart, you've evaluated your own leadership, and you look and you say, I still don't see the response. 
and only God can change a heart. But we are called to put that before God, to lead and love faithfully, and to let God judge ultimately. But we have to adapt our view to God's standard here. We have to see things through his lens. And that means as leaders, we have to recognize that many times our followers look like us. That's a terrifying realization as a parent. To say the biggest problem that my children struggle with is probably something that's true of my heart too. And it means asking ourselves again and again, how do we do these things better? How do we lead with a a loving fatherly correction? How do we lead by example showing them what to do? And how do we correct when that's necessary? But it begins with a genuine desire to do it. It begins with a heart and a genuine desire to lead and to love the people that follow us like this, like Paul did. For all the rest of us, as we consider Paul's example here, I would just encourage us to ask the question, how do we respond to those who lead us? Kids, youth, how do you respond to those that God has put in your life to love you, to be your example, and to correct you when necessary? Well, more practically in the church, Paul or Tom just finished up teaching on Hebrews and wrapped up with Hebrews 13 that says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Sounds familiar. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. How do you respond to those that lead you? And ask yourself, am I living this right where I've been called to lead? In my home, in my work, in my business, in the church? Am I living this type of leadership in whatever capacity of leadership God has called me to? We are to aspire to and to view Christian leaders as loving fathers. Here's the point. Here's the point of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Rather than sources of division, Christian leaders are to be viewed as faithful stewards, humble examples, and loving fathers. He says you need to change your view on the leaders that God has given you. You need to change your mindset and your perspective on those that God has given you. I have to forgive you because I think I have used this poem in a service before, so bear with me, but it felt so appropriate. I sent this to some of our elders a few months back, and I think it's extremely applicable in light of this text. So I want to close the message by reading this poem. Courage, brother, do not stumble. Though thy path is dark as night, there's a star to guide the humble, trust in God, and do the right. Let the road be long and dreary, and its ending out of sight. Foot it bravely, strong or weary, trust in God, and do the right. Perish policy and cunning, perish all that fears the light, whether losing, whether winning, Trust in God and do the right. Trust no party, church, or faction. Trust no leader in the fight. But in every word and action, trust in God and do the right. Trust no forms of guilty passion. Friends can look like angels bright. Trust no custom, school, or fashion. Trust in God and do the right. Some will hate thee. Some will love thee. Some will flatter. Some will slight. Cease from man and look above thee. Trust in God and do the right. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the fact that ultimately and finally, you are the one that evaluates all of our personal ministry. 
whether we're leaders and exercise a lot of influence or whether we're mostly followers and are simply seeking to be faithful in what you've called us to, Lord, give us the ability to be faithful stewards of whatever you've given us. Remind us of this call in our life. Remind us of the fact that Christ went before us in all of this. That he did all of the things we're being called to do. That he stewarded the ministry you had given him, that he served as our humble example, and that he corrects us as a loving father. Lord, help us to embrace that reality. Help us to embrace those that you've put in our lives to lead us. Lord, conform us to the image of Christ. Make us like your son for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.